Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. Here I am again to remind you about that one mineral you should be worried about not getting enough of. It is magnesium. I always tell you the story about how that fellow used to pound into me that magnesium was so important that we were ignoring it, and I took that to heart. It is a master mineral, powerful in over 300 reactions. There are two big problems, however. Magnesium has been largely missing from the U.S. soil since the 1950s, which explains why up to 80% of the population may be deficient. And most supplements contain only one or two forms of magnesium when there may be at least seven that your body needs and benefits from. That's why I'm always here to tell you about Magnesium Breakthrough, the ultimate magnesium supplement, the best out there with all seven forms of the mineral. I'm even more excited because it is back in stock, and we continue to provide for our listeners Magnesium Breakthrough. It's been selling faster than the company who makes it, Bioptimizers, can keep up with. It's already sold out a few times, and due to supply shortages with everything going on now, it could be sold out again shortly. The team here at Dr. Drew Podcast was able to arrange some stock to be set aside just for us. I guarantee the best deal available on this product. With volume discounts combined with our customer 10% coupon code, DRDREW10, you can save up to 40% off select packages of Magnesium Breakthrough. It's amazing value, and I promise it's only available on this website. That is magbreakthrough.com slash Drew. You won't find the deal on Amazon or even the company's own website. It is exclusively for our podcast listeners and really limited time while supplies last. They have revamped their checkout process. It is friendlier, easier. Magnesium Breakthrough, the most effective magnesium supplement out there. Say goodbye to having to buy seven different magnesiums to get the one dose. Go to magbreakthrough.com, M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H, magbreakthrough.com slash Drew, not Dr. Drew, just Drew, and then use the coupon code DrDrew10, D-R-D-R-E-W-10, to save up to 40% off select packages to get the most full-spectrum and effective magnesium product out there. And welcome to Dr. Drew Podcast. Uh, support those that support us so we can keep this thing going and uh, keep the winds in the sails of the Corolla Pirate Ship. I'm going to get right to my guest because I think you know he's one of my favorites. He is Sean Carroll. He is a research professor of physics at Caltech. His book, Something Deeply Hidden, Quantum Worlds and the Emergence of Space-Time, and because now this is the third or fourth time I have uh, coerced Dr. Carroll to head our way, I am asking all of you to go watch and listen to Mindscape. Listen to Mindscape. It is one of the best podcasts out there. And if you have any curiosity about the physical universe and more, by the way, he goes well beyond that, download, subscribe, Sean Carroll's Mindscape. I command you to do so now. You will not be disappointed. Sean, welcome back. Thank you very much, Drew. Thanks for sending your uh, your minions my way under your That's command. That's my goal. That's my goal right now. Now that you have uh, made the tremendous strategic error of telling me you would come back, you've become my own private <laughs> physics coach. Uh, and I'm hoping you're coaching up my audience at the same time, which is really the goal here. And, you know, as I listen along to your pods, I start accumulating questions. I start thinking, and that's always dangerous, you know, for me and for non-physicists. And you have this uncanny ability to make um, physics accessible. Um, and, and, I'm, and I'm going to, I don't know, I feel like I need a little more math today. Mm, good. Uh, I'm here. I'm here for you. Okay. Um, and, I, and I'm not a mathematician. My son literally is. Um, and, and I just marvel at some of the stuff he does and the proofs and whatnot. But I kind of understand the world that you live in with that. And I always wonder when I start thinking about things that I'm trying to make sense of things, I, I always wonder, it's just because I'm not looking at the math that, that I can have these sort of extraneous thoughts. For instance, I'll, I'll let you open with, if people didn't hear our previous conversations, the many worlds hypothesis. That's right. Uh, and, which is your favorite. And I know it's, you're, you're becoming known for that now. So explain to people where that came from. Well, actually, let me first, before I, because I will forget, uh, let me plug something because since we're in quarantine, my quarantine project is I'm doing videos called The Biggest Ideas in the Universe, where I talk about physics with like a little tiny bit of math. So it's kind of exactly what you're asking for. You know, I, I'm not afraid to mention things like calculus, although we don't do calculations or anything like that. I think it's actually, you know, a wonderful thing for people to want a little bit more math than they get in, you know, most of my popular books or Brian Greene's or Neil deGrasse Tyson's or Lisa Randall's or, or whatever. And I think it does help because the world is, the world is, 
exists sort of mathematically and we can talk about it using metaphors all we want, but sometimes the math is just the only way to really get the point across. And Many Worlds is sort of an example of that in some sense because people hear the world, the word Many Worlds or the phrase Many Worlds. Uh, it's a version of quantum mechanics. It's a way of thinking about what quantum mechanics is teaching us. And they say, well, that sounds like, you know, just fantasy science fiction land. Like you're, you're telling me that all of these parallel realities are popping into existence. And we can explain why you think that. But the one lesson that I would want to get across is we didn't just make up a bunch of worlds. <laughs> what we made up was quantum mechanics, you know, trying to fit the data. And if you just look at the mathematics of quantum mechanics, this was the brilliant insight of Hugh Everett who was a graduate student in the 1950s, he said, look, if you just take what quantum mechanics is telling you at face value, it says something like an electron, an elementary particle that is very quantum mechanical, can exist in a superposition of spinning clockwise and spinning counterclockwise. It's neither one nor the other. It's not that you don't know. It's really doing both. And if that's true, then you should believe that you can exist in a superposition of having seen the electrons spinning up and seen the electrons spinning down. And that means that the universe should be able to exist in the superposition. And indeed it does. And that's the many worlds interpretation. And then that falls out of the mathematics. Yeah. The many worlds, everyone knows everyone who understands uh, whether they agree with many worlds or not. Uh, when you get right down to the definition of it, it's just the most stripped down bare bones way of thinking about what quantum mechanics says. There are quantum states, there's an equation, the Schrodinger equation that tells you how these quantum state evolves, and the possibility for many worlds is there in the quantum state, and the only question is, does that possibility become real? And, and so, you know, I was always preoccupied with entanglement, and, and you, you um, explained that to me in a way that I finally got my head around, and as a result of that, I am now convinced that everything is just a giant quantum wave equation and we are just emergent properties. Is that accurate? My indoctrination is working. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> right. Uh, and, but of course, there's a lot of work uh, hidden in those phrases that you just uttered. Um, that, that's the challenge. And that's why, you know, I don't blame people who don't like the many worlds interpretation if they don't like it in a principled way. You know, there's plenty of reasons to worry about it. But the reasons are not that, you know, it's too heavy or it's too weird or, you know, I, I don't, it rubs me the wrong way. The reasons are that the formalism, as beautiful and elegant as it is, is so very different from the world of our experience, from the world of our eyeballs and our fingertips, that you say, well, maybe a theory like that could account for the world I see, but you're going to have to do some work proving it to me. And that's the work of, in showing that many worlds gives rise to the emergent reality we all experience. Some, somehow that's a feature of the emergence. Yeah, we would like, I mean, and this is why it, it, it sits at the uh, intersection of physics and philosophy, because we need not only to understand how wave functions work, the quantum states we're talking about, we need not only to understand uh, the evolution equation and so forth, but we also have to understand what emergence is, how you relate the fundamental ingredients of reality to the world of our experience. Daniel Dennett, uh, one of the world's best philosophers, you know, he, he says that this is his life's project to reconcile the scientific image of the world in the phraseology of another philosopher, Wilfred Sellers. There's the scientific image of the world and there's the manifest image of the world. There's the world we see and the world that our best scientific theories describe. And over time, you might think these come together, but in fact, they get further and further apart because for the very good reason that we learn more about the world beyond our everyday experience. So relativity and the Big Bang and black holes, these aren't things we experience every day. So you shouldn't be surprised that the scientific image is very different than the manifest image and reconciling them and showing how that they are compatible. That's a big project. And so when you speak of everyday experience, I, I immediately go to thinking about the human brain and its limitations. That, that's sort of where I go immediately. It's like we can't, our brain can only do so, so much. And math is sort of our telescope into looking out into the universe or whatever it might be. Um, and, and I brought this up to you before and I, and I've worried a lot about this is worriness. Worrying is a sort of philosophical enterprise. <laughs> People with philosophers worry about stuff. 
Oh yeah. And this must be a philosophical worry I have because I, I, I can't reconcile it. The, the, and, and, and I know that you actually have an estimate of the number of worlds that might exist, right? It's 10 to the 10th to the 10 yep. to the 37th or something. Yep. Is that about right? 10 to the 10 to the 122. Okay. 10 to the 10th, 122. Uh, and, and I don't, because I don't know the math, I don't quite get where that comes from, but it, it immediately makes me worry about the nature of big numbers and infinity and things that my brain can't do. And it all, and, and for whatever reason, so what I, what I want to talk a little about today is probability, okay? And for whatever reason, when I think about infinity, I think about asymptotes approaching one. And, and I feel like my brain cannot differentiate between some pure value one and infinity. Like those two things touch somewhere, but my brain can't make them touch. <laughs> and so I wonder whether many worlds approaches one in yeah. some fashion. So that's sort of what I'm thinking about. And that's one of the reasons I, I called you here today <laughs> to help me, help me straighten this out. Go ahead. Well, infinity is a wonderful thing to sort of sit down and think carefully about. I mean, there's, there's a, the moment in the young mathematician's life when they first learn that you can talk about the number of integers, right? The integers are the numbers that are whole numbers and negative yeah. whole numbers. So yeah. Zero, one, two, three, minus one, minus two, minus three. You can talk about how many there are. Guess what? There are an infinite number. Uh, you can also talk about the number of real numbers. So not only the integers, but all the fractions and all the irrational numbers in between, right? Pi and one over the square root of two and whatever. That's also infinite. But you can prove that the number of real numbers is greater than the number of integers. Now, that doesn't surprise you. I mean, there's, there's a lot of numbers in between the, the integers. But the rational numbers, the, the numbers that you can write as an integer divided by an integer, two-thirds, okay? That's equal in number to the number of integers. It seems like it should be larger since every integer is a rational number, but you can show that they're equal. And, you know, the number of complex numbers, which is equal to, you know, two copies of the real numbers, it's actually equal in number to the real numbers. <laughs> and this is just some of the weirdness of, of infinity. And the best is when you learn that the number of real numbers between zero and one Okay, like if you take the, the line, the interval between zero and one and just divide it up and say like how many numbers are there in between, it is exactly the same as the number of real numbers between minus infinity and infinity. And that's, that's just my that's, that That's where my brain goes, right. well, that's it. That's where the limits of what my brain can do, right there. <laughs> so infinity. And, and, then I, and then I have to think, you know, there is such a thing as infinity factorial. Oh, that's it. <laughs> done. I, I'm done. There was this wonderful <laughs> mathematician, uh, Georg Kantor, who showed how to classify all these different infinities. And there's still a lot we don't know. Like, so I said, there's one infinity for the, the integers, another infinity for the real numbers. Are there any infinities in between? We don't know yet. We're not sure. So, but the lesson here is the following. The reason you can ask those things is because you understand the world of mathematical proofs. And, and I want to point that out to, to the world. There's this thing called proofs. If you've not been trained in math, not arithmetic, not calculus, math, you learn how to prove things that your brain can't do, frankly. Exactly. I mean, this is it's exactly what I was to say. You know, we, we necessarily rely, when we start out thinking about these things, on our intuitions and our ability to visualize things. And people are always asking me, you know, you say that the space of wave functions is 10 to the 10 to the 122 dimensional. How do you visualize that? And my answer is like, holy cow, you, nobody visualizes that. That's crazy. I can visualize two or three dimensions. That's my, that's my max. If I really, you know, stretch, I can <coughs> pretend to visualize four dimensions. Um, but so the math has to guide you because you can't visualize it. And like you say, what you can do is prove things. So you can't just guess. You can't feel that that, that smells wrong. There are countless results in mathematics that smell wrong, that people would have guessed otherwise, uh, but you can mathematically show them. So when you feel like <coughs> the space of all wave functions in quantum mechanics, the many world space, it's just too big. You know, I don't like it. It's, you know, I, where's it going to go? These are not reasonable objections to have. As long as we can mathematically describe them, 
and they fit the experience that we have of the world, that's what counts. And to be fair, so by the way, in this dimension, you have a dry cough, and that's freaking me out a little bit, so be careful. Um, you know, okay. Don't worry. All right. Uh, <laughs> in, maybe in the other dimension, you don't have COVID, but in this one, I'm worried. So, so um, the, the, Or I'm just talking all the time doing podcasts <laughs> and videos and things like that. You know, you can think that's more higher probability. We're going to get into probability in a second. But, but um, uh, and, and to be fair, though, you know, proofs do evolve. And someone might come along with a new proof that somehow enhances, elucidates, changes in some way uh, Everettian kinds of interpretations, right? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, so, so this is the current knowledge based on, on current proofs. Um, so, so before we get to probability, the other thing I, I had to, a question about is, uh, well, <laughs> I wanted to get to free will, too, so you're going to love this. Um, I don't understand Hilbert space. Help me understand that. Yeah. Well, um, you start when you try to invent quantum mechanics back in the 1920s. You say, like, okay, I have an electron. Everyone starts with an electron. It's the most, you know, tangible elementary particle we can get our hands on. And you say, okay, um, the quantum mechanical way of describing the electron is very different than the classical way. In classical physics, you would say it has a location and it has a velocity or a momentum. Either one. It doesn't really matter. And so there's basically six numbers you have to give me. There's three coordinates in space and the three components of the velocity in the up direction, left, right, forward, backward. Okay. And by the way, as a quick aside, I, uh, I uh, practiced medicine alongside of uh, Dr. Milliken's, I think it was uh, his grandson, grandson, who was a surgeon. Okay. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, famous physicist. Um, so th there's a space, not only the space we live in, the three-dimensional space we live in, but there's also this six-dimensional space of which we call phase space, which is the space of all classical particle uh, states, which is the position and the momentum, okay? Six numbers you need, three for position, three for momentum. Why so three? Six, Why three? Yeah, three plus three, six. Good. Why, three? Why three each? What, what, I mean, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, each three one is a space. Yeah. Okay, okay. Three, three like there's three. X, got Y, it. and Z, uh, both for location and for velocity. Got it, got it. Got it. Um, but now you say quantum mechanics comes along and the electron is now a wave function, right? You can think of it as a cloud that relates to the probability that you'll measure it in different places. So at every point in space, there's a number, a complex number, which we call the amplitude, but who cares? But it's a number because that's what a function is. A function is a number assigned to every point in space. So if you say, well, how, what is the space of all possible wave functions, right? Just like we said, what is the space of all possible states of a classical electron? It's six-dimensional. The space of all possible wave functions is infinite-dimensional because at every point in space, you give me a number. That's an infinite amount of information, okay? Uh-oh. Uh -oh. Hilbert space is the space of all possible wave functions. So even for one electron, Hilbert space seems to be infinite dimensional. And for two electrons, happily, it's also infinite dimensional. It doesn't get any worse than that. Two times infinity is still infinity. And, and it, so it's just an infinite space. Of, well, oh man, my head. Is it infinite space or a, or a something of infinite probabilities? Well, this is the wonderful thing about math and science is that we, we reuse, we recycle with abandon and including the, the meanings of words, okay? So the word space to you might mean, you know, the final frontier. It's out there, you know, in the sky. Okay, that's one meaning of the word space. Another meaning of the word space is the three-dimensional world in which we live, right? Mm -hmm. Up, down, left, right, forward, backward. But mathematicians use space just to mean any collection of objects of mathematical things with some structure on it. So they'll talk about the space of the real numbers or the space of the integers or a circle is a space or a set of vectors is a space. So Hilbert space has nothing to do with space, with the three-dimensional world in which we live. It's this hypothetical land that has every possible wave function in it. And, and let's dig a little further on wave function in case people don't understand what that means. 
Yeah, well, you know, the wave function is just the slightly fancier way of saying the quantum mechanical state of the particle. So you spread out the electron from being a point classically to being a cloud, to being a function of all locations in space. And the wave function is the way you answer the question. If I were to observe the electron, if I were to look at it, what its position is, what is the probability I would get different answers? Where the wave function is large, the probability is large. Where the wave function is small, the probability is small. Yeah. And so, so that's how I was sort of taught physics uh, as it pertained to electron clouds. Yeah. And, and does, now this is where I kind of want to go next, which is, I don't know how to ask this any other way than this. Does it mean something that probability exists or does it just mean we can't properly define something yet? Does that make uh, sense? Am I asking that right? You are asking it very right. And if I knew the answer, I'd be super duper famous. <laughs> we, we, so probability exists. Would that be accurate to say probability exists? Well, probability certainly exists. What right, it is, know. is unclear. What, right. what it is, is unclear. Yeah, right. Probability exists. So uh, we can distinguish, let, let's just like make, make our lives simple uh, and distinguish between two different notions of probability. One is, you know, when you flip a coin, you say the probability that I, when I flip it next, it'll be 50% heads, 50% tails. And you can say what that means is if I were to flip the coin infinity times, half the time it would be heads and half the time it would be tails. That's literally what it means to be the probability, Okay. But there's another way that you can, that's called a frequentist notion of probability. The probability is really a summation of the frequencies with which different things happen. But there's another notion of probability, which is closer to, I don't know what reality is, so I'm ignorant, I have some lack of knowledge, and I will put a credence, a degree of belief attached to different propositions. So one proposition is the coin will be heads, one proposition is the coin will be tails. And that's a more subjective notion of probability because I might say, yeah, I put a 50% chance head, 50% chance of tails because I don't know what's going to happen. Another person says, well, actually, I know it's a fake coin, right? It's, it's, it's weighted. So I'll put an 80% chance that it's heads. And the probability is different for you and me. And it's not a mistake because the probability reflects our knowledge, not some intrinsic feature of the world. There was a lot packed into that. There was. I can go yeah. on. <laughs> Let's put it this way. People talk all the time about the probability that the Lakers will win the NBA championship the yes. next time we play the NBA championship, right? Yeah. Um, well, what does that mean? We're not playing the NBA championship an infinite number of times. We're certainly not playing this year's NBA championship an infinite number of times. Right. Really the only thing that can possibly mean is that you don't know who's going to win the NBA championship and you're putting a relative of firmness on your ignorance. So you're willing to bet a certain amount that it goes one way or another. The frequentist was the infinite one, right? Frequentist, is that what you called it? The frequentist is, yeah, literally the infinite frequencies. It, it makes me think that probability is an artifact of time in that, in that, in that sense. So, Right. So to be honest, I'm not a frequentist. Uh, this other version that I mentioned is called Bayesian probability. And it's just oh. admitting that we don't know things. And we can update our probabilities as we get more information in, like as we learn, oh, you know, LeBron has been eating cupcakes all during quarantine. So we lower the probability that the Lakers will win the NBA championship. Well, I, I would argue that the, the, the best example of updating priors and modifying Bayesian thinking is what's going on constantly today around coronavirus all that modeling and stuff that is good or bad application of bayesian thought well and, i think that yeah many people will say that bayesian reasoning is just a long way of saying reasoning <laughs> because we're constantly yeah. but it's reasoning taking into account of currently available knowledge i'd say or something like that yeah i mean so bayes himself reverend thomas bayes uh, you know, only published two things. And one was like a defense of the existence of God. And the other was a little essay on probability. And he suggested this. And it was actually Pierre-Simon Laplace, who's a very famous mathematician and physicist, who sort of made it more formal. But Bayes's theorem is a theorem. And a theorem is true. You don't, you don't get to choose whether you agree with Bayes's theorem or not. And it's the way of saying, well, when I get more information in, how do I change the probabilities that I okay. assign to things? 
the difference that there's a philosophical difference, which is, is that just a useful tool for situations when I don't understand what's going to happen when I am in ignorance? Or is that the fundamental nature of probability itself? And all this frequency talk is just uh, moonshine. What do you think? Yeah, I think that uh, I'm a Bayesian. I think that the, we don't know what's going to happen. No one flips a coin an infinite number of times, but I can estimate and bet that the next coin flip is going to be one way or the other, and that's what it means to talk about probability. It's- I have a feeling that that kind of Bayesian approach is much like I'm a Newtonian when I walk in, or go over a bridge. You know what I'm saying? It's sort of like in the physical universe as I experience it, Bayesian probabilities are probably the best I can do. Yeah? Well, I, yeah, I think that they're the best you can do, and they're the only thing you can do. I think it's the right way to think about probability, even in quantum mechanics, you know? Let, let's put it this way. If you're a determinist, which you may or may not be, so if you think that the current state of the universe determines what will happen in the future, um, you might say, well, then there's no probability, right? Everything is determined. That's right. fine, but I don't know what it's determined to be. Like, I don't know whether a black hole is going to come along and destroy the Earth, so I can assign a probability to that. Look, we even assign probabilities to events in the past, right? What is the probability that it was a single shooter who shot JFK? What mm-hmm. is the probability that I left my keys on in the office or something like that, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Now, of course, these have already happened. It's either yes or no, but it still makes perfect sense to assign probabilities to them if we don't know what the truth is. Well, that, that's actually, you're, you're going exactly in the territory I wanted to go into next, which was the nature of free will. Yeah. Uh, and, and which I, I don't see how you, you know, uh, determinism, uh, you're, I, I, to me, the ideas about determinism obviously flow right into the conversation about free will. So to, to my guess, ugh, that, that the fact that probability is probably a real thing and that we have this infinitely complex thing here carrying on, I guess, definable numbers of biochemical reactions, but all of which, all of which have sort of infinite probabilities attached to them. And biochemistry is just a giant probability equation too, right? But it has it laws, but it's the probability that it's going to go to this energy state or that's going to follow this enthalpic uh, outcome. It, it's not 100% either way, ever. It's just, it's a, it's a scatter, you know, I mean, depending on the relative energies we're talking about, I think certainly in a tiny biochemical environment like a neuron, there's a lot of probability involved. So yeah, ultimately it all comes from quantum mechanics. <laughs> well, that's where I want you to help me. And I, 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 that's a leap too far for me. To, to, I, I have a deep understanding of biochemistry, but to, to wrap it into quantum mechanics, I, I, I just fall back on, well, it's an emergent property of quantum mechanics, so, which is waving my hands wildly. But, but isn't it possible, uh, the fact that probability exists, which we both believe, that somewhere in that cloud of probabilities, something like um, an emergent property of uh, things like consciousness and will exist. Couldn't that be a virgin property too? Look, whenever you ask me, isn't it possible? <laughs> okay. always, always going to be yes. It's possible. It makes sense to you. Does it make sense to you? Am I thinking about something that is, is likely? Or is it's that what you take? I'm afraid brain in a bat and I'm just imagining all of these things, right? So, uh, no, I don't think it's likely at all. So, I'm, by the way, I want to take you down the brain, an interesting path. I've heard you bring up the brain of the bat a few times, and I have an interesting corollary on the brain of the bat. But go ahead. Okay. That question. Um, look, it's not absurd to wonder whether or not uh, something about consciousness, etc., cetera, uh, or human volition has something to do with quantum mechanics. When we invented the rules of quantum mechanics in the 1920s, uh, infamously, notoriously, the, there were some rules for how quantum systems evolved when you're not observing them. And there's a whole different set of rules for how quantum systems behave when they are measured or observed. And so it seems like, and, and these rules were enshrined and we still teach them to our students today. Like we didn't update the rules, okay? This is what is called the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics. So it certainly seems like observers, agents, people play a role in our best description of the universe as a physical system. But these days, 
80, 90 years later, we can do a lot better than that. We have versions of quantum mechanics that are much more rigorously defined, much more scientific, much more objective, in which observers and consciousness play no role at all. So you're allowed to be an old stick in the mud and still insist that observers are important, but you're not forced to do that. We have better theories that you can believe in if you choose to. In, in those theories, do you not need an Everettian world? Well, Everett uh, would be an example of such a theory. So I many see. worlds is a theory that is just equations all the way down. But there are alternatives. There are hidden variable theories. There are objective wave function collapse theories. There's a whole panoply of theories. Panoply, I always pronounce that word wrong. Panoply of, uh, of theories that have nothing to do with consciousness or people, yet match the known experimental results of quantum mechanics. Do you get into some of this stuff on the new videos? Uh, a little bit, you know, the video that just came out on entanglement, uh, I talk about, I had one video before this on quantum mechanics in general, where I give the party line, the usual conventional story. And then my most recent video on entanglement, I talk about many worlds and hidden variables as uh, rigorous versions of this kind of sloppy party line. Yeah, entanglement used to completely flip me out until until I accepted the the, the, the wave nature of the quantum mechanical wave nature of everything <laughs> set that entanglement into your life i'm glad yeah well no it was just like how is that possible how is that possible oh it's all just one thing yeah that makes perfect sense and and it also makes sense in terms of how my brain works our, our brain is what separates things out i mean things have some separation but our brain is built on that i mean look think how the retina works the retina whenever there's uh you know a crossover of any th- movement or texture or color that's where our brain goes up. Oh, that's important. Uh, so we, we, we are built to look at differences and, and separate things, you know, in space that may not actually be separate. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to undo any understanding that you may have achieved, but just to be <laughs> Keep going. is not the same as a classical correlation between say it again, say it again. Entanglement is not the same as the classical notion of a correlation or a relationship between two things. Entanglement is a specifically quantum mechanical phenomenon that has to do with when you observe one thing, you can then predict the outcome of other things that you have not yet observed. I I get the care with which you provide that definition. I don't (laughs) intuitively understand the difference. I'm guessing there's some math in there. There's some math, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> see my video right. yeah okay i gotta watch the video so that that'll further further clarify my my understanding of these words this phenomenon i mean i mean let's you know let people in on where this came from you know as i said the 1920s quantum mechanics gets put in its modern formulation people like einstein and for that matter schrodinger of schrodinger's cat fame they never were happy with it uh, and they weren't anti-quantum mechanics. How could Schrodinger anti-quantum mechanics? He invented the Schrodinger equation, okay? But they were they were convinced that the theory wasn't done yet, They're that worried. it was incomplete. And Einstein in 1935 put you know made put his finger on what bugged people about quantum mechanics. And it's not that it's random. You know, you can you could deal with that if the world were like that. It's that there's this spooky action at a distance that you can measure something here and that implies something instantly about what goes on far away. That's what literally on the other side of the universe. Yeah, exactly. Both the same. Yep. Yep. And and so before then, even though we had quantum mechanics, we hadn't really appreciated the phenomenon of entanglement. It was Einstein who really taught us to do that. In the existence of entanglement, like you just said, is not a mystery. It's not like, oh, will we ever understand entanglement? No, no, we get that. What we don't get is sort of how to fit it in to the world that we think is right. I mean, spooky action at a distance. Spooky is not a scientific part of it. I mean, we have, uh, like you said, limited capacity to perceive the world, but we have potentially infinite capacity to understand the world. You know, our brains have reached the point where it might be difficult, but we can abstractly manipulate the symbols for any logical statement you want. It's a matter of, can we accept it? And can we do the hard work of mapping a logical structure onto the world of experience? Well, and I add to that, and I think the way we proceed is when it does bother our intuitions we keep looking for better or alternative ways to explain things right and that's perfectly fine right i mean this is 
one of the things I talk about in my book, Something Deeply Hidden, about quantum mechanics, is that the dividing line between people who like many worlds and people who don't can, in some sense, be traced to which is more important to you, a theory that is sort of intrinsically elegant and beautiful and austere and compelling, or a theory that clearly matches what we see, right? Those are two different criteria, and they are intention in the world of quantum mechanics. Yeah, I don't see how you could start reaching for things that have a direct reflection of what we see because we're we're way beyond that. Well, people uh, try very hard, and, they, and they've made some successes, but it, to me it just looks like an ugly attempt to avoid the reality that's staring us in the face. Is, is there uh, I have a, a sort of a rush of questions. Um, one is, d- does any of your theories, do, 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 I guess this must be true, that the the quantum wave function of the universe, the first and second laws of thermodynamics must fall out of it somehow. Is that math? Do you have that math now? Is that something that can be shown? I mean, these are all things that uh, there's sort of a rigorous, perfect proof, and then there's a pretty good working understanding, right? I would say we have a pretty good working understanding without fully rigorous mathematical proofs. You know, the first law of thermodynamics just says energy is conserved. The second law says that entropy increases, and that gives us the arrow of time. Uh, The connection between, I think that most physicists would say the connection between quantum mechanics and energy is perfectly well understood. Actually, I think that they're a little bit wrong. I'm writing a paper right now saying that there's been this, this, there's a way in quantum mechanics to seem that energy is not conserved, even though it secretly is in the Everettian multiverse. Uh, The connection between quantum mechanics and entropy and the second law is more subtle. And that's more complicated. We're still working on that. But uh, there's no no big obstacles. It's just that, you know, there's a lot of details left to be worked out, I think. Much like we kind of don't know what a wave is, do we know what entropy is? Well, sadly, we have more than one knowledge of what entropy is. The word entropy, like the word space, uh, has many different definitions that work perfectly well in different contexts. Mm. Some of them are perfectly well-defined and we understand them perfectly. Others are, you know, good working things in this or that context, but we don't understand them perfectly yet. And so it's not that there's one correct definition and we just haven't decided yet, but different contexts have situations where different notions of entropy come into use and that's perfectly okay. But that's where we as an emergent property happen, for lack of a better word, right? I mean, to me, it feels like, again, again, because I, I, you know, I lean on a lot the first law on my understanding of uh, biochemistry again. Yeah. Because you can kind of, you can measure it and see it and feel it. And the entropy is there doing its thing, but it's sort of, you're, you're kind of going the other direction in biological systems, right? You're, you're ordering things rather than, even though you're being fought the whole way, you're still ordering things as, as you go. But that seems, go ahead. Uh, yeah, this is a, a crucially uh, important question. It's not that there's any uh, mystery, but there's just a lot of things we don't yet understand. So I, by, by mystery, I mean, there are things we don't understand, but there's nothing that seems wrong. It's just that we yeah. haven't figured it out yet. But living systems are open systems. We exchange energy and information with our environment. The second law of thermodynamics just doesn't say anything about open systems. It says in closed systems, entropy goes up. A living being is not a closed system, so it can do whatever it wants. Now, there's different versions. Again, there's different versions of the second law, different definitions of entropy that do say something about open systems. But what we would like to understand thermodynamically is why life comes into existence at all and why it flourishes, why it keeps going. And there are people who have really interesting proposals along these lines, uh, but there's certainly not anything like a standard accepted model. Give me, give me a hint at one. Is it more like the first law has a predominance over the second law or something? In some no, it, it's or? more like, look, you know, um, if you have a balloon, okay, yeah. uh, and there's helium inside the balloon and there's ordinary air outside the balloon, uh, it is higher entropy to take that helium and spread it all throughout the room than to keep it in the balloon. Yes. But that doesn't imply that the balloon pops, <laughs> right? The balloon, it... it the second law says entropy never will spontaneously go down, but it doesn't tell you how fast it goes up or even that it must go up, right? Well, just I mean, the balloon is a closed system, and it's, it really just says that all the helium molecules don't gather in a corner of that balloon. 
That's how the law says. But yeah. in the room, there is a way to increase the entropy, namely pop the balloon. But that there's no be. law of physics that says, therefore, the balloon pops. Okay, that's where, that's where God exists. Well, that's where the origin <laughs> of life comes. Particle. That's the, where the, the origin of life. The idea is that the thing that life does is it increases the entropy of the universe in a way that couldn't be done if life didn't exist. Life is a complex chemical reaction that, in in biochemistry terms, releases the free energy uh, locked up its an environment. So it's not, this is, I do like to emphasize this over and over again. It's not that there's some mystery that life is low entropy and therefore violates the second law. It's exactly the opposite of that. The reason life exists is because of the second law. And the mystery is how exactly does life help the second law along? And, and I think more, staying with your balloon popping metaphor, how did it get started? Yeah, exactly. Right. And so um, it's complicated, right? Life is, by definition, complex. And so we don't know whether or not it relied upon some wildly unlikely random fluctuation into a certain kind of very nice configuration, or whether or not the formation of life is pretty robust. Uh, if you get the right chemicals and the right temperatures together, life's going to happen more like more often than not. That's why we need to fly a spaceship to Europa dig under the ice and look for life there. You know, like there's a few environments here in the solar system where plausibly life could have come into existence. Uh, Saturn's moon? Europa? Uh, Europa is around Jupiter, but Titan is a moon of Saturn and uh, Enceladus is another moon that these are all, they have a lot of water or methane on them and they have temperature gradients and they have complex chemistry and they'd be wonderful places to have life on them, but we haven't gone to look yet. And so that would really help us understand whether life is more or less inevitable or whether it's pretty rare. And in, in terms of their, you know, we sort of have, don't fully have answers yet. I, I always start thinking about areas where there's more mystery and so my brain automatically went, well, does gravity have anything to do with all this? Or is that just way out? Well, gravity is everywhere, so it has something to do with everything. Yeah. Uh, but it, it certainly has something to do with the particular way in which entropy increases throughout the history of the universe. Mm. Um, the universe starts out very smooth. It becomes lumpy. It's smooth near the Big Bang. It's lumpy today. And it's going to get smooth again. And that's all, in some sense, the working out of entropy and gravity, uh, hand in hand, pushing the universe into this particular set of configurations. So in the world as we know it, in the universe as we know it, gravity is absolutely crucial to understanding the particular way in which the universe evolves. But I can't promise you there aren't other universes where gravity is very different that also have interesting things going on. And so our biological brains have only one kind of time, which is the essentially biological time, or I think you call the arrow of time, right? The forward vector of time. Yes. Is that my, you, my you know better than I do. Uh, brains are complicated. I would yes. never sign on to a statement that the brain has only one kind of time. There's a lot going on. No, 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 no. Uh, you're right. You're, you're absolutely correct. Cause time can expand and contract and do all yeah. kinds of things with, with our brain, but, but essentially it's dependent on biological time. Frame. That's right. Sure. Okay. Say it that way. Um, in the quantum mechanical world, I guess it would be in Hilbert's space, right? Is there anything like temporality? Well, there's time. There's time evolution. In fact, the Schrodinger equation, this fundamental equation of quantum mechanics, is precisely the equation that tells you, if you give me a wave function at one moment in time, what does it evolve into at the next moment? Or what was it at the previous moment? It's a time evolution equation. Time evolution is just as central to quantum mechanics as it is to relativity or Newtonian mechanics. Which is kind of interesting, right? The time's well, still here. Time is special, yeah. I mean, time is... Uh, Einstein taught us that time and space are related to each other, but they're also pretty manifestly different in obvious ways, and understanding why that's the case is full employment for theoretical physicists. I, I mean, to me, really, if you really, you know, get time down to its minimum, it's just sequence, right? I'm sure there's other properties, but sequence... It does have other properties. I mean, yeah. you know, look, I wrote a book on that, too. I mean, what <laughs> What's that book called? What's that called? It's called From Eternity to Here. Okay. The idea that uh, the way the time works here in our kitchens, you can break an egg but not unbreak it, is ultimately because of, situa of conditions that were set up near the Big Bang 14 billion years ago.
Okay, I'm taking a deep breath because I, I feel like I've walked and I kind and I, you're so very kind in putting up with all my <laughs> meandering because I, I sit by myself and think about these things and I have nowhere to go with any of these thoughts because I, I, I can't hook it to anything. Well, you uh, know, it's, it's wonderful how little we understand about the psychology and physiology of time. You know, people say, well, time seems to go faster now that I'm older. And we actually have a little bit of a clue as to why that's true. It's not just because, you know, your body is slowing down or anything like that, but it's because you're accumulating novel memories more slowly. When you're five years old and you go to the beach for the first time, everything is new, right? Everything you see is just a complete mind-blowing experience, and it makes an impression in your brain. And when you're 50 and you go to the beach, it's still fun, but it's not as novel. It takes up less space in your brain to remember that experience. And therefore, in retrospect, the number of memories that you accumulate over that summer when you're 50 is just smaller than the number you accumulate when you're five. And that's why time seems to go by faster. I just call that memory impairment. It's just well, it's a, the time. Yeah. a lovely thing to deal with, I must tell you. Um, so let me just uh, ask you sort of if anything happening, what's going forward with you, speaking of the arrow of time, what, what are you looking forward to, who are you interviewing, what, what has, who has impressed you lately, uh, what do you want people to go listen to? Yeah, I mean, I have the podcast, uh, Mindscape, as you mentioned. I've been pretty lucky recently to have uh, you know, a good eclectic bunch of people. I mentioned uh, Looking for Life in the Solar System, so I did a wonderful interview with Kevin Hand, uh, who is a, a scientist at JPL, d- Deputy Director of NASA's Looking for Life in the Solar System effort. Uh, and so if you want the details of why we think there should be life on Europa and stuff like that, you can go listen to that podcast. And the videos I'm doing, uh, you know, it's, I'm having a lot of fun. This was, I, I, as usual, I was too ambitious. This was my quarantine project. As soon as it became clear that we were going to be in quarantine, I said, okay, I'm going to you know, do some videos. They'll be short, snappy, informal, And I ended up like buying a green screen and a new video camera (laughs) and lighting. And the average length of the videos is over an hour long now. But every week I talk about a different big idea in physics and philosophy and in cosmology. So we talk about, you know, things like space, time, uh, matter, symmetries, entanglement, all these things. It's a lot of fun. Where do I find it? YouTube. If you just look for me or just look for biggest ideas in the universe, it's easy to find. It's a playlist biggest ideas i'm running it down right now and you can see two things as because of the arrow of time one is i get better <laughs> at video i get you know, i'm able to do green screen better you know and, and my color correction is better also my hair gets longer because i'm not able to cut my hair here in quarantine so getting a little getting a little scruffy there and that's that's the arrow of time at work so i went to uh junior high school and high school across the street from caltech and, and a bunch of my Friends and classmates were, you know, fathers were uh, professors at Caltech, including names like uh, Pauling and Gray, and they were all the kids were my. That's where I kind of grew up with. Yeah, uh, and um, and Lamb, uh, and it was an awfully conservative place. Do they give you any pushback for all your um, media campaigns? Oh. Um... Yeah, I mean, in general, academics have a very mixed relationship with uh, public outreach and things like that. On the one hand, if you asked them, they would say, oh, it's wonderful that there are people who bring our message to a wider public. On the other hand, if you say, okay, but what about this person? (laughs) Oh, well, they're not a serious scientist because they spend all their time talking to the public, right? Right. Uh, So it's a little mixed, yeah. Oh my goodness. I, I just think it's so important to, to get it out of the institutions. And especially with now we have such amazing technologies where, I mean, I'm, I'm just so grateful you're out there doing this. You have no idea. I have so much fun. So, you know, I can't say that it's a selfless uh, giving that I'm doing here, but it's been very, very nice to see because the videos in particular, they're in this in-between layer, you know, where you don't have to be a mathematician or physicist to understand them. They're not technical for the experts, but I'm not afraid of getting into the weeds a little bit and talking about some of the details. You know, if you wanted to know what the principle of least action is really all about, I will explain it. And so, you know, there's a niche there that can be filled because the ecosystem is so broad now, whereas before people might have just said like, yeah, that's, that'll, that'll never sell. I'm not going to publish a book about that stuff. 
Well, that, and I think you're, you must have been teaching this long enough that your unique talent is you, you have to get these concepts across and, and then the, the math has to be there too. And, we, and, and so you're really good at getting the concepts across. Well, I, uh, I try to be really good. And, you know, part of how I try is I try to keep in mind that when I'm talking to this kind of audience, people out there who are interested but not experts, uh, the goals are different than if you talk to a sophomore physics major, right, who is trying to grow up to be a professional physicist. Like, the sophomore needs to get the mathematical tools down to a point where they can reproduce these calculations themselves and do them yeah. at the research level. Yeah. Uh, and But the person who's just watching my videos might want to hear the words and understand the concepts and see the pictures, but they don't need to reproduce the calculations themselves. And yeah. so that's a very specific target to try to aim for where you can really give deep, true, real understanding even without the ability to reproduce it at home. And I'm guessing as you build skill in reproducing the math, it, it, it's in big chunks. You just have, you know, Maxwell's equation is one thing in your head. It's in one spot. There are moments of, you know, there are epiphanies when you go like, oh, that's what they meant, right? Like, that's what, that's what one aims for as a teacher or someone who is talking about these things. You know, you try to remember what you didn't understand and try to explain that. That's very cool. And before I let you go, anything non-scientific you're thinking about or, or worrying about or interviewing about or have interviewed and caught your attention? Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, so many people, I feel, I feel bad about, uh, you know, mentioning anyone's names because they're all good, like on my podcast or anything like that. But, uh, I, I did a great podcast with, uh, Liam Kofi Bright, who is a young philosopher in London on the nature of truth. Also how it, it relates to, you know, the, the sort of two sides to that question, like what is truth at the deep philosophical level, right? Is it correspondence to reality or is it pragmatic use or something like that? But then there's also a down-to-earth question about how we find it, right? Like how science works. And uh, Liam has very interesting ideas about, you know, the role of peer review and scientific research and uh, whether or not science is really a meritocracy and things like that. And stuff that scientists themselves just don't worry too much about, but maybe we should. Okay, I've got, I think I made it through the first half of that one. And uh, that must be the latter half when you get into that. And so yeah. I'm going to go back and yeah. study it. All right, Sean, again, as always, uh, I order, I insist uh, that you all dutifully go listen to Mindscape. Uh, it's, it's your obligation to me and to Sean. Um, you won't be sorry when you do. Um, and also check out the biggest ideas in the universe, which I will be a – can you download stuff off of that? Can we go to be like oh, I don't know. Whatever your favorite way of consuming YouTube is. I, I was horrified to see someone posted a picture of Twitter of them watching it on their big screen TV. And I was like, oh, oh no, awesome. don't do that. <laughs> That's fantastic. All right, maybe I'll do that. Uh, all right, Sean, thanks again for swinging by. Hopefully I won't bother you quite so soon as <laughs> this last as this last arrow of time interval. Um, but I really do appreciate you coming around and helping us understand these things. So thank you. Right. I think my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. All right, take care. Bye bye. See you next time. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Mm-hmm.